This week's TribCast is sponsored by Raise Your Hand Texas. Listen to the new Raise Your Hand Texas podcast, Intersect Ed, where the stories of education policy and practice meet. Visit raiseyourhandtexas.org slash podcast. And Hogg Foundation for Mental Health. Despite our obsession with the vaccine hesitant, these experts explain how the right approach to vaccine outreach can bridge divides. Listen at hogg.utexas.edu. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune TribCast for July 1st, 2021. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News and Politics for the Texas Tribune. And this week I'm joined by Executive Editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. Politics Reporter Patrick Spitek. Good afternoon. And Breaking News Reporter Reese Oxner. Hi, happy to be here. Thanks for joining us. Um, This week, we are going to talk a little bit about some trips to the border by some prominent national politicians. Uh, This week, we saw Governor Greg Abbott hosting former President Donald Trump for the border. There was a uh, a kind of briefing um, that involved uh, some local law enforcement. Uh, well, not local. They were Fort Worth, uh, Tarrant County, and uh, and uh, Brook County. Am I, am I saying that right? A county about a mile, an hour from the border. Um, and also heard from DPS um, as well. Um, and then, you know, some speeches, some comments by Trump as well. Patrick, you were kind of keeping an eye on this. Can you uh, give us the rundown of, of what happened during uh, Donald Trump's border visit? Yeah, as you pointed out, he had a, a briefing with some law enforcement officials. Uh, Greg Abbott, the governor, was also there. So was uh, Attorney General Ken Paxton. And then he did a, a tour of the border and, and delivered a speech out there um, that I believe was in front of what was supposed to be some of this uh, new border wall construction that uh, Governor Abbott has ordered. Um, and we really didn't learn too much new about the state's uh, border security efforts uh, from this, uh, you know, chain of events uh, really was an opportunity, I think, for Greg Abbott to show off to Trump um, what the state is doing to uh, ramp up border security under um, Joe Biden and to show that Texas is on the front lines of uh, trying to fill what they view as a, a void in border security at the federal and congressional levels. Um, and obviously there were you know, this whole day was imbued with uh, politics. Um, you know, Abbott had invited Trump um, to come see the border after announcing that Texas would begin uh, building its own border wall. Um, just a few weeks ago, Trump had endorsed Abbott for re-election. Um, and, you know, we're really seeing Abbott um, embrace Trump, um, you know, in a way that he hasn't before ahead of his 2022 re-election campaign. Um, and as he, uh, you know, faces uh, at least one credible uh, primary challenger and uh, faces speculation about other potential primary challengers. Uh, so, you know, a pretty a pretty notable day in that regard. But as far as substantive news about the border, um, it was, you know, left a lot to be desired. Yeah, the, the briefing, I think pretty much all of what we saw in that briefing were things that we had heard before and even people we had heard from before. You know, the Tarrant County Sheriff has has been, you know, accompanying Abbott on a few of these uh, kind of media events. Uh, the presentation that Steve McCraw, the, the director of DPS, Department of Public Safety, gave um, were numbers that Abbott has cited a lot. I was talking about a big uptick in, you know, border apprehensions of people who have crossed the border in 2021 versus 2020. Um, Of course, there are some caveats to that data, particularly 
purely because you know there was a um, a slowdown during the pandemic last year um, and possibly some pent up demand now that this has happened again. Um, but uh, no, you know, disputing that that those apprehensions have passed or have increased. And, you know, Abbott and, and Trump, for that matter, both, and really Steve McCraw, too, um, were, were very eager to kind of lay the blame for that on the Biden administration. But, Ross, I mean, this was a, a, a political event, as, as Patrick says. I mean, mostly what we were seeing here was, you know, Patrick said showing off for Trump about the thing he's, he's doing for the border, but maybe even more importantly, showing off for Trump voters, Trump supporters who might turn in because they're the, pre- the ex-president that they favor was 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 coming to Texas. Yeah, I think they totally erased the line between a government event and a campaign event. You know, it was a campaign event attended by government officials, whether those were state law enforcement or local law enforcement or a former president and a current governor and a lieutenant governor. It just struck me as, you know, the opening shot of the Abbott campaign for 2022 and maybe beyond. Yeah. And it was striking, particularly from McCraw, you know, who was really making a lot of political statements at the front end, you know, really congratulating, thanking Trump and kind of bashing Congress in a way that was interesting for a, you know, uh, a high ranking bureaucrat, uh, essentially, to, to be making some of those comments. You could tell, too, McCraw was, uh, yeah, the comment he delivered about um, it was a pretty awkward moment, a pretty tense moment where McCraw said something along the lines of, I know we've got some members of Congress in attendance, but the Texas legislature has done more for border security than Congress ever has. Um, that definitely seemed like a deliberate calculation by him to, you know, kind of, what, what could I say in this moment that would satisfy the politics of the moment without being overtly partisan? Um, and it, it seemed like a pretty remarkable comment by the kind of parameters of what you would expect a, a figure like Steve McCraw to say. Might not have been overt. It walked right up to the fence line. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So, um, and I don't, you know, and I mean, I'm sure publicly Abbott, uh, you know, would deny that this is about politics, but all the, all the, you know, all the packaging of this event, if you look at the way it was promoted on social media, um, you know, through both his, uh, you know, both political and official accounts, um, you know, this is very clearly, if you look at the uh, just barrage of fundraising emails that his campaign sent out about this trip uh, ahead of it and, and even during it and after it last night, it was a fundraising deadline last night. Um, you know, it's very clear that politics played a big role in this. That's right. You know, we, of course, we had another visit from Kamala Harris, the vice president, who came to El Paso on Friday, um, right, kind of before this. And you caught, you saw some kind of snide remarks from some of the officials in the room um, uh, yesterday on Wednesday, kind of almost kind of mocking her trip. Uh, Harris came to El Paso. Uh, she met with five immigrant girls and, and really uh, talked about kind of their conditions back at home um, and really seemed to be focusing on, you know, what she described as the root causes of my migration, um, you know, really talking about what is driving folks to, you know, feel desperate enough to, to travel, you know, from Central America in particular um, across, you know, all the way up to Texas and across the border, which is a dangerous trip. And obviously a lot of folks end up in, in not great conditions when being held on the border. Um, you know, I, 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 wrote, I pulled out a quote from our story of Harris visit, you know, this issue cannot be reduced to a political issue. She said during a news conference at the event, um, although I think I think we can all agree that it has become a very political issue. And, and Ross, you know, another thing that we reported on this week was the polls 
um, and, and what, you know, voters in Texas seem to think is most important. And one of the most striking things we saw here, 34% of Texas voters said that immigration and border security are the most important problems facing the state. That's a big number. And that was a big number compared to kind of what came behind it. And even more so among Republicans, 59% cited immigration or border security as their top concerns. So, I mean, that's got to be driving some of the, the action that the actions that Abbott is taking right now. Well, it's interesting. I think that's right. And I think one of the things that jumped out at me was when you asked them what the most important problem facing the country is, they have some other answers that compete with border security and immigration. But at the state level, most important problems facing Texas, uh, these two are always at or close to the top. The only time I've seen them bumped aside or even tied was at the very beginning of the pandemic, you know, when people's concerns turned to virus. But even by this time last year, you know, we were only three or four months into the pandemic. Even by this time, immigration and border security were back at the top of the charts among Republicans, certainly, and then generally, you know, high among Texans. Abbott's clearly where his voters are. He's clearly paying attention to what they're paying attention to, but he's doing it in a new way. You know, it's always been um, the National Guard and the state police have always been kind of kept out of enforcing uh, immigration law, uh, largely because of a Supreme Court ruling about um, that kind of enforcement in Arizona. Uh, there's some feeling here that that might get challenged. And, you know, building walls has always been federal business and not state business. But, you know, I, this is one of the things that I think is really, you know, very election oriented about Abbott's whole pitch right now. You know, if we're going to talk about this as as it was felt like a political event, then let's talk a little bit about the politics of it, because there were definitely some kind of uh, fascinating palace intrigue going on here, watching, you know, who Trump was talking to, who was there, who was reacting. Um, you know, I, I thought there were some pretty interesting pictures uh, floating around on social media of Trump and Abbott kind of ahead of the group as they were you know, touring near the border wall with uh, Dan Patrick and Ken Paxton and, and some other state officials kind of, you know, farther back behind them. Um, you know, a very notable moment during the um, briefing was when uh, Donald Trump kind of seemed to maybe be hinting that he might be planning to endorse Ken Paxton for re-election in the, um, the, the, that bit. I mean, Patrick, can you kind of describe that moment for us? Yeah, I mean, it was pretty clear that this AG primary was uh, on Trump's mind during this trip. I think he mentioned it uh, in his public remarks at both stops, both at that border security briefing and at the you know wall uh, ceremony that he attended. Um, at one point during the border security briefing, he turned to his left and kind of noticed it seemed like for the first time that Ken Paxton was sitting next to him and said, you know, oh, hey, you know, hey, Ken, good, good luck, Ken. I, I hear you got a little race coming up. He called it a little, quote, a little race. Um, and, you know, <laughs> he asked him how many opponents he had. You know, Paxton then said two. Trump said oh, two. That's not that bad. Um, but it was it was um, amusing uh, to see this ostensibly, uh, you know, serious event, uh, just take a casual detour into just open, open conversation about the attorney general's re-election race. Um, you know, Trump has said, uh, ever since George B. Bush got into that race to challenge Ken Paxton, you know, Trump has teased a, an imminent endorsement in the race. He has not made that endorsement yet. He said on, uh, during the briefing that he'd make the endorsement quote in the very near future. Um, so he continues to kind of dangle it out there. Um, and, uh, you know, coincidentally, you know, Ken Paxton was on uh, radio right before a few hours before the briefing and told Mark Davis up in Dallas, 
basically that he was confident that Trump would ultimately endorse him. He said that, um, you know, Trump clearly likes to, um, you know, be effective with his timing, likes to be playful with his timing, but that at the right time, I think Paxton said something like, you know, this endorsement will quote fall toward me. Um, so Paxton seems confident. Um, you know, George P. Bush has also, uh, you know, voiced what I would consider some confidence that he's really in play for this endorsement as well. He's talked about how he, since he launched his campaign against Paxton, he's talked with Trump on the phone multiple times. And so, there's no doubt. Uh, that's all I'll say. There's no doubt that Trump is just relishing uh, the amount of value uh, and, and pursuit that's being put into this endorsement in this primary. Yeah, and Paxton had about a mile wide grin on his face when right. Trump brought that up. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I get my picture with the president. Here I am. Here I am. Right. Right. <laughs> it, it was right. also interesting that that Bush was not kind of a prominent player in that meeting. I, I'm not sure. I did not see him there. I, I I guess I don't know for sure that he wasn't down at the border. But. You know, I asked his team if he, ahead of the trip. I asked his team if he would be there, and I didn't get a response back. Um, I did not see him uh, on the live streams, and so it seems unlikely that he was there. Um, but really the, the three officials, it seemed the three statewide officials that got the, um, you know, kind of front row attention were Abbott, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, and then Paxton. You know, it was interesting also in the, um, in the, I guess hours, maybe minutes after, maybe even while Trump was still there, we, we also heard from, um, a, a new challenger to, um, Sid Miller. Can you tell us a little bit about that, Patrick? Yeah, State Representative James White from East Texas uh, announced uh, amid all of this that he was going to he's going to run for agriculture commissioner. Um, that post is currently held by a fellow Republican, Sid Miller, who had flirted with running for governor in 2022, challenging another fellow Republican, Greg Abbott, but decided earlier this month or announced earlier this month that he would instead run for re-election as ag commissioner. Um, you know, James White announced earlier this month that he would not seek re-election to the Texas House, and he pretty quickly after that hinted that he could run for statewide office. And pretty quickly after that, he hinted that he could run for ag commissioner. So this was not entirely unexpected. Um, the two things that stood out from James White's announcement, um, number one, he played up how he was, the news release said he quote, was an early supporter of Donald Trump. Um, clearly that's a category that you're going to have to compete hard with Sid Miller on, given how vocal and enthusiastic of a supporter of Trump Sid Miller has been. And then number two, the James White uh, announcement also, um, you know, had some pretty thinly veiled uh, language contrasting with Sid Miller's various scandals in office. Um, it said that, you know, something to the effect of James White, you know, has a reputation for integrity and ethics. And it also said that Texas needs uh, competent statewide leaders. I remember that that adjective competent uh particularly well from that news release. And so um, we started to see, again, while, while it may have been expected that James White was going to launch his campaign at some point, we started to get a little more detail on what kind of race he would run against Sid Miller. Um, we didn't get any response back from Sid Miller, usually a pretty chatty guy. Um, and I haven't seen any public remarks from him yet on, on being challenged by James White. We need like a, we need like a shade meter somewhere where, you know, he, he, he does that to Miller. There was a sign off on one of um, Don Huffine's, Announcements that uh, is signed Don Huffines, an actual Republican. Right. Um, yeah. Eva Guzman is uh, talking about integrity. You know, in the race against Paxton. You know, when you know, there's there's some pretty good shade measurement out there. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating if you look at the um, you know early run of statewide primary challenges that we're seeing here. You know, both Paxton and Miller are not necessarily being challenged on ideology. 
Um, they're not being challenged on, you know, their support for Donald Trump, which is a, you know, a, a frequent uh, consideration in a lot of Republican primaries across the country these days. Um, but they're being challenged, I think, on more unique factors related to their competence, basically. Um, and I think that that's uh, fascinating when you look at when you consider the uh, the history of Republican primaries in Texas, at least recent history. Um, you know, it's usually been waged an ideology. This guy's too moderate. Um, this guy's too squishy, not conservative enough. Uh, these primary challenges so far do not seem to be centered on that, are, are much more centered on basically how people have done the actual job that they've been elected to do. Yeah, I think it's extremely interesting, too, to see the kind of dance that these challengers are coming up against. You know, your your story, you and James Baragon are one of our other reporters who wrote on this uh, James White news, wrote had a, had a line in there that really struck me that White offered thinly veiled contrasts with Miller over his personal controversies over the years, which include spreading fake news on Facebook and using taxpayer dollars for two trips involving personal activities. You know, kind of questioning the, the ethics, you know, is that how you're supposed to behave in office while also really running to embrace, you know, that announcement email that went out last yesterday was a, you know, full-throated embrace of Trump, you know, I believe he said, make the ag commission great again, or something like that, you know, and a lot of those things that people are, you know, hitting Sid Miller on are not too different than some of the attacks and frustrations people have with, with Trump in that regard. So it's interesting to see kind of, you know, there seems to be this movement of, you know, seeing among at least a segment of the Republican party seeing uh, Sid Miller and Ken Paxton is problematic and maybe vulnerable in that way, but but you know, not necessarily you know embracing you know some of the characteristics in from from Trump that that maybe they're decrying um, from their their statewide leaders. It's, it's yeah, gonna be- I mean, yeah. I mean, basically, the case that George P. Bush is making, the case that Ava Guzman is beginning to make, the case that James White is starting to make, are basically. You know, you can have someone in this statewide position who's just as conservative, who's just as supportive of Donald Trump, uh, but just doesn't have the baggage, isn't going to bring shame to the office, isn't going to, you know, be in the headlines for all these unflattering personal things. I mean, that's the I think that's the major bet um, that these early statewide challengers are making. We'll, we'll see whether you know voters actually care. So one announcement we have not seen from Abbott is uh, what's going to be on the special session call. You know, I think <laughs> we are now a week away from a special session. We know or we're pretty sure that voting will be an issue. We're pretty sure that uh, bail will be an issue. Um, and we're pretty sure that, you know, Abbott will probably find some way as, as long as they do what he wants them to do to let legislators kind of get their pay back. But Ross, what what do you make of the the kind of radio silence on, you know, what specifically he's going to allow these lawmakers to consider when this special session begins in a week. You know, the only only thing they have to do is the budget thing, uh, is the restoring the budget of the state legislature. And at some point that stops being a threat to the legislature as much as it is a threat to how things are going to operate going forward. If on September 1st, you haven't funded the legislative staff, you lose, among other things, the Texas Legislative Council, which nobody's ever heard of outside of government, but that's where they draw redistricting maps that are going to be the subject of the special session in the fall. Uh, That's also the agency that federal judges in redistricting litigation in Texas uh, go to for assistance on their maps. So there are a lot of things that sort of, you know, come to pieces um, late in the summer if the budget of the legislature 
hasn't been fixed. And the and the power here moves from the governor, who's sort of holding this over the legislature, over to the legislature. You know, the Democrats would be holding this over the governor, kind of if this goes into August and goes late in the game. So, you know, if you're in the drama club, that's kind of what you're looking for. If you're in the anticipation club, you know, you're right. You know, he's got to put supplemental appropriations for the budget in the, they call it the call, the agenda for the session. Uh, the whole reason they've said they were calling it was for voting. He's mentioned bail. He's mentioned critical race theory. He's mentioned, you know, a number of other things that didn't get through the legislature. You know, I'm hearing some talk in the electric industry that, you know, they'd like to fiddle with some things. I know the lieutenant governor wants to go into the repricing argument again over people who got overcharged and companies that got overcharged in February. There's a long list of supplicants. And, you know, I, I think I'm like you. I, I think it's interesting that he's going this close to the beginning of the session before he tells anybody, you know, if there's any homework. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're if you're Abbott, I mean, it frustrates people like us, and it's not necessarily in the interest of, um, you know, good government or transparency. But if you're Abbott from a political perspective, you probably want to wait as long as possible to release details of this special session. Number one, you have Democrats who are really trying to strategize for this special session. Um, you know, we have a story coming about how you know they're keeping everything on the table, but there's still a lot of unknowns about. Um, their strategy because they're waiting to hear more from Abbott. So you keep Democrats in suspense and, and try to head off any further obstruction, particularly on the elections bill. And then number two, you know, Abbott has to worry about, he still has a, you know, small but vocal group of detractors on his right um, who no matter what he puts on this special session agenda are going to have um, some complaints. There's going to be bickering. Um, you know, again, it's just, it's you know, I wouldn't say it's just large influential group at this point, uh, but he's clearly felt some heat on his right. I think he's been pretty more responsive than ever these days to the heat on his right. And so um, the second consideration there is you put out this agenda, as soon as you put it out, you open yourself up to all these other people on your right saying, oh, why did you put this on there? Why did you go this far right on this proposal? So it seems like politically, again, Abbott, uh, you know, even if it's not in the interest of transparency or good government, Abbott is incentivized right now to keep everyone in suspense for as long as possible. Yeah, and you know, as as y'all noted, we have we have a pretty decent list of things that we expect. Right, and it's already, yeah, there's already we already know a good a good amount. Yeah, and I guess you know the the looming question, the thing I'm wondering about is, are there you know, last time we had a special session in 2017, there are all these kind of things that felt like they were seemingly out of left field. Like I remember there was something about uh, like cities' rules for cutting down trees, you know, and that like you know, we all kind of looked at each other being like, okay, we're, we're going to have to study up on city tree ordinances. Cause this was not something that, you know, anyone was really talking about publicly much before then. So, you know, the big question I have is, are we going to see any of those things, things that we're not even talking about or thinking about that, um, you know, are suddenly going to be, you know, thrown to the forefront in, in a week, hopefully by next week's trip cast, we'll be able to talk about this. I, w- I want to know if dogs are coming back. The dogs. <laughs> yeah. This was a piece of legislation the governor vetoed and surprised everybody, I think. And uh, it would have regulated, you know, when and how you can lash up a dog, you know, being held outside. You know, can you tie him to a tree? Do they have to be able to get water? Um, and it was, you know, all the all the persons of dog really liked it. And all of the, you know, most of the legislature really liked it. And it got to the governor and everybody thought it had sales on it and he vetoed it. So um, now he's getting, you know. Um, a lot of a lot of flack uh, from 
everything from PETA, which I'm not sure he cares about, to um, some of the people in, in cities who I think he does care about who were saying, well, wait a minute, don't you like dogs? It's interesting. Yeah, you, you don't want to anger the, the dog people. That's a, a motivated constituency. All right, let's take a break and hear from our sponsors. Broadway Bank. The impact of COVID on segments of the national economy has been widely understood. What might be less known is the impact these events had on the home-building market. And George W. Bush Presidential Center reopened, featuring a special exhibit out of many, one, Portraits of America's Immigrants. Tickets available online only at bushcenter.org slash immigration. Okay, so another bit of news that grabbed our attention this week was related to Texas schools. We, of course, have gone through the past school year, which was a kind of huge challenge for school districts, students, teachers, parents, everyone, as they balance, you know, some people returning to school and many people continuing to do distance learning. And we, on Monday, heard the results of the state's standardized test, the STAR test, which could give us a little bit of an insight on, you know, how much damage this uncertain, strange school year caused in the learning for Texas students. Reese, you watched this story. You reported this story. Tell us a little bit about what the results said. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, the STAR test results that just were announced um, are from 2021 uh, because there was a gap year due to the pandemic already. And so really, uh, and if everyone from teachers and school officials, the parents have been kind of waiting and expecting these scores to be lower than usual. And so we are seeing um, pretty significant drops in math and reading, mostly uh, among third to eighth graders, which is the kind of segment that takes those types of exams for math and reading. And we're seeing, you know, we're, we're at a time right now when star test results had been steadily improving uh, since about 2012. But after all the disruptions related to the pandemic, uh, they kind of dropped on average to um, previous year rates. So reading levels dropped to like 2016 rates, math rates to 2013. And math especially is where we're seeing the largest gap. I mean, we're going from where about half of students were beating their math grade level, either like meeting or exceeding what they should be expected to do that grade. And now it's dropped to 35%. And then also students of color saw larger drops. Um, but really the biggest gap we're seeing is between the format of classes. So those who had mostly online classes saw larger gaps than those who had mostly in-person classes. And so during the press conference, when these test results were being discussed, uh, Texas uh, Education Agency Commissioner uh, Mike Morath, he, he kind of called the negative impact really profound, but really he pointed out the biggest thing was online instruction like saw great learning loss. And so he really kind of congratulated Texas uh, for returning to in-person learning um, as soon as it did, um, which was, you know, widely applauded and criticized at the time. And so he really called that like crucial for kind of stemming some of this learning loss and even alluded to like uh, that other states may see more learning loss, but that's yet to be seen. Yeah, you know, the, the, the numbers that you, you mentioned in your story were pretty striking. You know, uh, students who met math test expectations dropped by 32 
the number of students dropped by 32 percentage points and the number of students who met reading expectations dropped by nine percentage points. That's compared to 2019. You know, there is a bit of a caveat there, which was that the star test was voluntary in 2021. But, you know, the uh, the education commissioner, as you noted, in your story, felt that there was enough people who took that test, what, over 80%, right, if I, if I remember correctly, Reese, um, that, that they felt like they could draw some conclusions on that. But the, the difference between in-person learning and at-home learning, you know, was definitely striking. Ross, you know, state leaders faced a lot of heat for, you know, pushing for a return to school. But it sounds like you know, and, and we can talk about the health effects of that. There, there are, of course, more impacts than just on reading scores and things like that. But in terms of at least trying to mitigate learning loss, these numbers seem to suggest that there was at least some reason to, to be wanting to get students back in school. Yeah, I think the, you know, the balance they were trying to strike was impossible. It was, you know, on one hand, if you put everybody in the same room, you raise the risk of the pandemic spreading, you know, through the school population and beyond that, you know, from, you know, kids as carriers to the folks back home. Uh, so there was a public health concern. And at the time that they were saying, you know, we should um, do remote learning for a while, they began talking about learning loss last spring, you know, when they had first started this. They, you know, they know they have a certain amount of slide during the summer, you know, kids go home during the summer, they have 10 or 12 weeks off, they come back, they're not in exactly the same place they were when they left school in the spring. So they've got some numbers and some and some information on how students slide. It just turns out if you keep them out of school longer, the slide is deeper. And now they've got to figure out, you know, decent strategies to catch these kids up so that this cohort of students doesn't lag behind the people behind them and the people in front of them, you know, kind of in the in the flow of education, you know, eight or 10 years from now and into their adult lives. They've got to figure out a catch-up strategy. Yeah, yeah for sure. I was going to say, it's a scary thing to think about because, Reese, you know, you mentioned in your story, Marath said that only about 4% of students across all grades who are below grade level catch up within two years. You know, the... Um, when you when you fall behind, it's extremely hard to catch up. Did state officials or did any of the school officials you talked to for this story say much about kind of what can be done here or what they're going to try to do to, you know, undo some of the damage caused by the past year and a half? Yeah, for sure. And so, yeah, just like you said, that that four percent number is really uh, dire to hear. Um, but, but the thing to kind of put it into perspective is also this kind of learning slide is very different than typical learning slides we may see in a regular year, mainly because it was so widespread and across the board, um, and kind of fueled by one singular event that had a lot of ripple effects. And so I think it's going to be, um, somewhat of an experimentation as well with these local districts, uh, because right now they're submitting their own individualized plans which will be funded by some of the federal stimulus packages that we've seen. Um, there is about 18 billion set aside for public schools in Texas just for um, kind of those recovery efforts as well. And so that's what we're going to be seeing in the next couple of months, because uh, I believe districts get about 60 days to finalize plans. Um, and then, of course, uh, there's just a lot of, of concern from parents and teachers, and they're, they're having lots of meetings right now to kind of discuss a path forward. 
Um, additionally, we, we did see a bill pass in the legislature to address some of these learning losses, uh, House Bill 4545, which will kind of require um, more tutoring uh, for students who fell behind on this, on this particular test, as well as teachers that have been like, labeled as high performing uh, will be provided to different districts um, and be funded through this bill. And so there are some efforts in the works. And then the commissioner, the TEA commissioner also promised that more instructional materials, uh, more support for teachers, um, emotional support for students and things like that will be kind of added uh, on a statewide basis. But he hasn't provided concrete details of that yet. Yeah, you know, one of the, the great tragedies of this pandemic, uh, of course, it has affected people of all kind of races and economic levels and everything's like that, everything like that. But it has really amplified and thrown into you know sharp relief the the inequalities you know that persist in in Texas and elsewhere. And and this is another example of that. You know, we're seeing disproportionate impacts of this on people of color, of people who um, speaks uh, English as a second language and, and things like that. And you know, I think one part of that could even just be political, right? Is that um, the uh, a lot of the more conservative white you know, wealthy suburban areas were kind of more interested and willing to go back to school more quickly, you know, and and, and maybe had more of those kind of conservative communities that, uh, you know, pushed to reopen schools and things like that more quickly, while, you know, some of these big urban school districts were extremely hesitant. And, and you know, the, again, there are, there are reasons for that and, and, and health concerns, uh, that were, were very valid at the time. Um, but, you know, again, it feels like this is going to, you know, further exacerbate problems that kind of already existed in Texas and elsewhere before, before this pandemic even came. Yeah, for sure. I mean, even just um, the, the demographic that was affected the most um, across all of the categories were Hispanic students, which in Texas, that means 52% of our student population. So, that just goes to show that that kind of stark uh, change as well. That's right. That's right. Well, this is something I think we're going to be wanting to follow very closely over the coming months and really even years as, as this, as we noted, impact will be felt for a long time. But thank you, Reese, for uh, helping explain it. Uh, thank you to Ross and Patrick. Um, and thank you to uh, Michael Ray, our uh our uh, uh, producer. Um, I am now pulling up our sponsors as well. Thank you to Raise Your Hand Texas and the Hogg Foundation for Mental Health, Broadway Bank, and the George W. Bush Presidential Center. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you.